right, so welcome to, uh, to Everyday Church, friends. Good to be together. Um, today we are finishing up our series, The Gospel of John. So this is the last uh, uh, Sunday in this series, and um, I'm pretty excited about the story. In fact, the story that we're looking at today is, I think I can say, you're allowed to say this maybe, I think I can say is my favorite story in all of Scripture. I think. So... Um, more on that in a little bit, but you'll get, you'll, I think you'll sense that I like the story as we go through, as, uh, as I share with you. So, but if you, uh, if you've been around much um, on pretty much any Sunday when Alberto has spoken, then you know the guy loves visual aids. So he's always got something like toys or art supplies or whatever. He's got some sort of thing. And, I, you know, I'm trying to learn from him, like catching on gradually. And so today I decided that I would bring a visual aid. Um, so this right here, this is my favorite candle in all the world. Not this exact candle, but this type of candle that's this shape and says what it says on the front. And uh, so you have to know... Um, I, uh, through the course of my life, have a very mixed relationship with candles. Um, oftentimes, it doesn't go well with candles. So, uh, for some reason, candles tend, certain candles especially, tend to trip my allergies out, like, real bad. So, you light up a candle and give it a few minutes, and my face, like, starts melting. Just, like, leaking, coughing, sneezing, my eyes running, my blowing my nose. It's not actually very pleasant. Um, to hang out with candles through the course of my life. Uh, but this candle right here, this candle is worth it. This candle, it's worth it for a couple of different reasons. So two reasons, actually. One, this candle is a wood wick candle. I don't know if you've ever experienced a wood wick candle. There's this really wide piece of wood. Instead of that, like, lame, basic, like, white little string in the middle of the candle, that, you know, boring. This is a wood wick candle. When you light a woodwick candle, it crackles and it pops. It like makes noise. So you don't just smell the candle, you hear the candle. Which, I mean, come on. If you can add more senses to it, this is good. So that's, that's one of the reasons I love this candle. The other reason I love this candle is because this candle is wood smoke fragrance. So when you light this thing, you listen to this crackle and pop, and you smell a campfire. It's like heavenly. So... Uh, so when I light this candle in my apartment, it's almost as if I am not in an apartment in New York City. It's almost like I can't hear the horns and the sirens and my neighbors and the people arguing on the street. You know, I'm teleported. It's almost like I'm in the wilderness somewhere and I'm sitting by a fire and I'm listening to it crackle and pop and smell the smoke, and, uh, which happens to be one of my favorite things um, to do in the world. So... Um, I wanted to like get a bunch of these. They're not cheap, actually. I wanted to get them and spread them around, but I thought, fire code, you know, it's a school. Maybe we shouldn't have candles all over the room. So you're just going to have to imagine. But we're going to take a minute. I'm going to let you imagine. So hold on. So I want you guys to just, just close your eyes. I've got a little treat for you. So just close your eyes. Relax, kind of get comfy, take some breaths, some like deep breaths, you know, make some noise when you exhale a little bit. Um, and just imagine yourself like you're, you're like sitting by a campfire. Maybe you can hear the wood crackling. You can see through your eyelids maybe the light moving around. <laughs> 
one more really deep breath and let it out with a sigh. So our story today, you might wonder, I'm just going to hold this the whole time I talk. I hope this is not distracting to anyone. So lovely. I should have arranged for that to be the background sound the whole time I was talking. So, um, so our story today, it actually takes place around a campfire. Who knew? Jesus hanging out at a campfire. Breakfast, in fact, with Jesus around a campfire. A campfire on the shore of a, of a large lake, the Sea of Galilee, uh, on a beach. So, you know, we're just going to try to feel that space um, today as we work on our last story uh, that we're going to look at in the Gospel of John in this series on uh, the Gospel of John. So we started this journey with John back in um, early September somewhere, I think the week after Labor Day, and uh, that was seven weeks ago or something like that, and uh, we've been exploring John's approach to sharing the life of Jesus with us. So John, um, if you remember from our introduction, John was a very close friend of Jesus. He was pretty young, probably a teenager or early 20s during Jesus' life when he was hanging out with Jesus. And, uh, and this book, John uh, writes this gospel account of, it, of Jesus' life, the end of John's life. So he's probably, it, it looks like he was probably in his 80s or around 80 when he wrote his account of Jesus' life. So he was with Jesus when he was young. He spent his life following Jesus, remembering all of the things that happened in his time with Jesus, and then decides at the end of his life he wants to write that stuff down so that we, uh, we have a record of that and can reflect on what he had learned um, from Jesus. So take a look. This is a quote that we looked at in the introduction from um, uh, author and teacher N.T. Wright. Uh, this is what N.T. Wright says. The Gospel of John, John's account of Jesus' life, gives the appearance of being written by someone who was very a very close friend of Jesus, someone who spent the rest of his life mulling over more and more deeply what Jesus had done and said and achieved, praying it all through from every angle and helping others understand Jesus' life. So as we've learned along the way, as we've been processing through these stories, we realize that John didn't just randomly choose stories to jot down on a scroll, that he was very selective and very intentional in what stories he chose uh, and what he recorded from us for us in the way even that he structured those stories and presented them to us. So uh, the very final words of the book, this is kind of fascinating what John, his last couple of lines in, uh, in his book, uh, in the Gospel of John, John writes this, Jesus did many other things as well. So not just these things that I've written down for you and recorded for you. He did many other things. Uh, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So this, uh, John is telling us, like, I'm sharing some stuff, but there was a whole lot more stuff going on than just what uh, I've recorded for you and what the other uh, gospel accounts have written down for you. So John and these other writers, they they couldn't possibly capture everything that Jesus did and everything that he said. And when I think about that, I start to imagine like being John or being one of the other writers and trying to figure out like, what do you write down and what do you leave out? Like, how do you choose between all your experiences and all these stories you've heard of Jesus teach and things that happen? How do you decide 
what important things to write down that Jesus said and what other things you're just going to leave out. You don't have enough scrolls to write it all down, and the process and the expense at that time would have been something we can't really uh, comprehend. So John wasn't flippant. He wasn't casual or random in his approach to writing uh, this story and this account of Jesus' life. He spent his life wrestling with these things, telling these stories, sharing them with people, and he gets to a place where he's ready and wants to write it down for us so that thousands of years later even, we still have his account and stories of Jesus' um, life. Because Jesus is, after all, the center of everything for us as Christians. We look at everything we experience, everything we see in Scripture through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is the orientation around which we function and think and breathe and live as followers of Jesus, as children of God and as the church. So we kicked off the series uh, with John's introduction to the book, the first um, it's like 20 verses or 18 verses or something like that of chapter 1. So we kicked it off with the introduction. Um, we... Uh, we then moved on to different stories uh, about Jesus. But in that introduction, we see John introduce us to this being that he refers to as the word, el verbo. With God in the beginning, when God brought order to the chaos of the cosmos. In fact, John says that nothing was brought into order. Nothing was created except through Jesus, except through the word, except through this being, el verbo. This being was with God and was God. So in the introduction, uh, at the very end of the introduction, this is what John writes. This is in verse eight, 17 and 18 of John chapter 1. John writes, the law was given through Moses. So he's talking about the Jewish law. This everything that, our, uh, that the Jewish faith was built on, the foundation of the Jewish faith and Jewish people's identity, and Christians, everything that we're kind of founded on and, and birthed out of, the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He knows the Father's heart. He's revealed God to us. You want to get to know God, John says. You want to get to know what God is like. God made himself known to us through Jesus, in Jesus, in his life, in his teaching, in the way he lived and loved. And throughout history, throughout the millennia, God has been up to some crazy stuff, mysterious and confusing and amazing and powerful things God is doing. But God has uniquely revealed himself to us through Jesus. God's unfailing love and faithfulness came to us through Jesus. So John invites us, has invited us into this journey, to journey with him through his experience, through his memory, through his own journey with Jesus and time with Jesus, to see, in fact, what God's unfailing love and faithfulness looks like in action, in life, to see exactly how Jesus um, makes God known among us. So I'm going to do a little... Uh, a little diagram. My rain story, actually, this morning, I carried this. This thing comes in a box. I carried this thing over here in a giant umbrella to keep me and it dry. The wind, I came around the street corner, and the wind hit, and it was like I'm flopping on the corner. Um, so anyways, it's here so that I can draw some stuff on it for you guys. All right, so here we go. We're going to just kind of do, I want to give us um, a visual. Um, what color should we use? We'll use green. Um, 
a visual of our uh, our journey with um, Jesus, what we kind of see played out timeline-wise, and uh, and some of our stories and that, the stuff that we've been learning from um, from John. So, all right. So we don't have a lot of information in Scripture about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. We uh, we have some stories surrounding Jesus' birth when things began, when he entered into the world, and we kind of know those, and we talk about those at Christmas time, that sort of stuff. And then we have one story when Jesus is 12, but then there's not really anything else that we know of Jesus until he's 30 years old. So the first 30 years of his life, we don't really know a lot or see a lot or learn a lot about Jesus, about his personality. But at age, uh, around age 30, um, Jesus comes on the scene. He actually shows up uh, to his cousin, John the Baptist, and asks John to baptize him. So we're going to start here. I'm going to put a B. I should have put it on the other side so I didn't block it while I was writing. All right, so we're going to start here um, with Jesus' baptism and a beautiful B. Um, all right, so uh, Jesus is about 30 years old at that point. And we know from looking at the timeline of the different events in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that his what is referred to as his public ministry. So before this, we don't really know what's going on. He's not living a public life. From this point on, Jesus begins to live a public life. He's out, he's on the hillsides, he's walking the streets, he's with people all the time, and, uh, and we refer to that as his public ministry. So his public ministry begins, and we know from the timeline that it lasted between three and four years. So Jesus' time in public, before he was crucified, before he left the earth, ascended, was about 30, um, or excuse me, three to four years uh, or so. So we come along uh, through the course of those three to four years, and at the end of that, towards the end of that, we encounter the cross. So um, Jesus is from uh, most of his time, a lot of his time was spent in Galilee in the north. He comes down into Jerusalem. He spends some time there. That's where we have the, like, um, uh, the parade, basically when G a week before Jesus is crucified, he's entering the city, and all the people come out and celebrate him and treat him like he's a king. He rides a donkey into town, and they throw their coats like they're making this, paving this way for the king who's arriving. So that happens uh, the week or so before the cross, and then Jesus is arrested, likely on a Thursday night, and uh, on a Friday, early Friday morning, he is uh, crucified. So that, I'm going to put an F there for Friday. So crucified on the cross Friday morning. Uh, he dies that afternoon sometime. Um, the time frame is like crucified around 9, ends up dying around 3 in the afternoon. He's taken off the cross. Um, he is put in a tomb uh, Friday evening, buried in a tomb on Friday evening. So then uh, Jesus is in the tomb the entire time, uh, all day on Saturday, and then on Sunday uh, is Resurrection Sunday, what we call Resurrection Sunday. So Jesus, come probably early in the morning, comes back to life on Sunday. So we, uh, we arrive here uh, at Sunday in Jesus' um, resurrection. So then Luke tells us that Jesus spent another uh, 40 days, approximately 40 days, from the time he resurrected until he ascended into heaven, and that's going to just be uh, an arrow pointing out. So that's Jesus, Jesus ascending into heaven. So three to four years, all of this, um, the first part of Jesus' ministry, the cross, resurrected on Sunday, and 40 days uh, in here. And this is relevant to us today because we're looking at a story. Wendy looked last week at a story in those 40 days, and we're going to look at another story later in that time frame. So that is uh, a basic sketch of 
the timeline. Now, what we did in the course of this series is look at stories that many of them took place during this uh, time of ministry, different things that Jesus was doing. Uh, Wendy shared the story that ha- last week that happened um, like a week after Jesus' resurrection. So this uh, Resurrection Sunday, the following Sunday, um, Jesus appeared in our story last week to, uh, to his disciples. Okay, let me make sure I got all of our bits of information I wanted to jot. If I missed them, I'll come back to them and, uh, and write them on there in a bit. So, okay, so, so far in this series, we've looked at John's introduction to uh, his account of Jesus' life, and then these six different stories that, um, that take place at different times during this, uh, this timeline. So in those stories, we see Jesus living out what John refers to as God's unfailing love and faithfulness. John is giving us a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to live out this idea of God's unfailing love and faithfulness. And Jesus does it in very surprising ways, sometimes shocking ways, countercultural with things that that made people say, no, it can't be like this. Jews don't behave this way. Pe- children of God don't behave this way. This isn't loving. This isn't right. They re- many people reacted to Jesus in this sort of startled way. It's very difficult for us 2,000 years removed to really get that. But we've tried in this series to get our minds around what would have been a like if you were there, if you were a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person in that environment watching what was going on. So we looked at the story of uh, the cleansing of the temple, if you remember this story. So the temple, that's kind of God's place for all his people to get together and spend time with God. And Jesus goes in there with this righteous anger, and he cleanses the temple. He drives out, there's animals and all kinds of money changers and all kinds of things that are going on there. That Jesus is standing against an injustice that's happening, a mistreatment of vulnerable people, taking advantage of people. And we see Jesus come in with this righteous anger, driving away and making, taking a stand against injustice. Then we meet the Samaritan woman. This woman who uh, is of Samaritan nationality or descent. Um, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Men, Jewish men, don't associate really with women. They certainly don't talk in public or with anyone other than their, maybe their wife or children. And so we see Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman, breaking norms of relationships between men and women, breaking cultural barriers of like who we don't associate with and who we're not allowed to talk to or touch or interact with. And Jesus just shatters all of these perceptions of what it looks like to behave properly in these sort of cultural and relational settings. Welcoming and befriending and using even in ministry this woman who he, in the context, wouldn't have even interacted with or been around. So then we see uh, the woman caught in adultery, the story that Alberto walked us through. This woman who was caught in uh, an adultery and brought before Jesus. And we see Jesus in this moment The law of the Jews, the Hebrew law, gives information about what's supposed to be done with people who uh, commit adultery. And Jesus just disregards that. They're like, hey, here's what the law says, and Jesus just disregards it. In fact, he says to the woman, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. We see Jesus responding to people that normally would be condemned by religious people in a way that welcomes the man to relationship and family with him. That Jesus doesn't condemn and challenges us, I think, in those kind of stories 
to think about the ways in which we judge and the ways in which we condemn people and the people around us. Then we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. So Jesus is their teacher. He's in a position as their rabbi, their teacher, their authority figure, um, their master would be language that they would use. They're, he is above them and they are beneath him. And Jesus gets down and he functions like a servant and he washes their feet. And in the process, in what he's doing and what he's saying, he's flipping society's understanding of power and authority on its head. In the kingdom of God, in the family of God, authority and power and privilege aren't used for our own benefit. They're used to serve and care for others, Jesus says. This drastic flipping of our understanding of what it means to have and to use power and authority and privilege in a godly way. So last week, uh, Wendy opened our eyes, I think, to a new way of understanding and thinking about our own doubt. Um, Jesus' friends were very confused following his death. And Jesus, again, we see Jesus not condemning, not rebuking them for doubting or having thoughts that aren't consistent with what he'd been teaching them. But he is present with them, gracious and understanding and compassionate towards them in the midst of their confusion, which is understandable. He moves us from this idea of certainty and right belief and getting it all right and never doubting or never questioning things in our mind to this place of trusting him, who he is and what he's done and the relationship that he offers. That trust is what he's encouraging us towards. And on the, uh, on the church retreat earlier in September, we looked at a prayer that Jesus prayed actually uh, just shortly before he's arrested and before we, uh, we see him on the cross. Um, Jesus slips away from his friends and spends some time alone with God. And uh, we get to see into his prayer and his conversation with God. And he's certainly praying about himself and praying about his friends, but he also moves on to praying for us, a concern and a love and a compassion for you and I that are going to come along years and years later and try to figure out what does it mean to, what does it look like to follow Jesus. And so we see Jesus in this relationship, in this conversation with his uh, heavenly father. So these are really powerful stories when you think of it through the lens of what does John want us to see about this Jesus, this word, this being that is God in the flesh here with us. That Jesus is revealing God's unfailing love and faithfulness. That's what John wants us to see. And he's doing it in very unexpected and surprising ways, ways that challenge our normal everyday kind of life and the way we interact with the people around us and think about things. Reshaping our understanding of how things really work and of what God really cares about. Unfailing love and faithfulness. Not so much punishment and condemnation. And when Jesus was asked to boil it down, which I like the moments where Jesus is asked very real questions, but Jesus kind of asked, like, What's what do we do? Like, how do you boil this down? What are the greatest commandments? What do we need to focus on? And Jesus sums it up and says um, that we love God and love our neighbors, that that's the way in which um, we boil this thing down to focus our attention on loving and how is the world going to know that we're followers of Jesus? Jesus says, by our love. That's how the world will know. How are they going to know that Jesus is real, that he is indeed God with us? 
by our love, by the way we interact and love and care for one another. That's what reveals to the world who Jesus is and what he uh, cared about. That just as, and this is a fascinating thought to me, that just as G John says that Jesus was here to reveal God's unfailing love and faithfulness, that we see from scripture that we're now called to reveal God's unfailing love and faithfulness. That Jesus was revealing this, and now in our lives as the church, as followers of Jesus, as the body of Jesus, scripture says, it's now on us to reveal God's unfailing love and faithfulness to the world, to live the way Jesus did, to love the way he loved. And we see John in his old age, towards the twilight of his years, John desperately wants us to understand this idea of love and faithfulness and to look at Jesus' life through that lens and to understand what he was up to and what he was doing. So we come to our final story. So let's get into our story for today. And I think that I love this story um, for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's a campfire, but I think it's more than that. Um, but I love this story primarily, I think, because it's real. It's not a complicated story. It's not a, a confusing story. It's not a miraculous or a mysterious type story. It's just a real story uh, of Jesus with his friends. And it happens sometime probably toward the end of those 40 days when uh, Jesus is sticking around after his resurrection before he ascends. So let me set the stage a bit for us as we, uh, we get ready to encounter this story. So as Wendy and Alberto uh, over the weeks, the past weeks, have shared with us, the Jews of Jesus' day were taught that um, there was an anointed ruler that was going to show up on the scene. That anointed ruler coming from God was going to appear at some point. And they referred to that anointed ruler as Messiah. That's all Messiah means, anointed one or anointed ruler. In fact, the word Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. Christ is the same thing. It just means anointed one. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. That's what those words are talking about. And they are words that the Jewish people used to help them capture this idea of this ruler, this anointed one, this chosen one that was going to show up on the scene on earth and do something really important, that he was actually going to restore the nation of Israel, that he would lead the people of Israel, the Jewish people, as they kind of oversee and lead the world, that he would create or reestablish this nation, this kingdom. And it was clear to Jesus' followers that Jesus was this Messiah. He was this chosen one that was showing up to reestablish the kingdom of God, reestablish the people of Israel, the Jewish people, into their position of power and authority, overseeing and guiding the world. That is what they believed. And Jesus affirmed it over and over that he was the Messiah and that he, he talked about this new kingdom, the kingdom of God that was coming. Jesus was talk constantly talking about the good news of the kingdom, what God was doing and established. And it was exciting and it was powerful. And they believed Jesus was the Messiah. And then their Messiah was murdered on a cross, like a criminal. The worst kind of way you could murder someone. Hung on a cross, bleeding to death. And all of their hopes and their dreams, all of their expectations are suddenly dashed 
what they believed Jesus was about, what they believed that he was doing. You think about disappointment, you think about crisis of faith, uh, of doubt and confusion. What would it have been like to follow Jesus and to believe this and then to see him murdered and think, what was that all about? All these things that he taught us, all these things that we thought were true, and now Jesus is dead. But then there start to be rumors, and Jesus starts to appear in weird places, behind locked doors sometimes, and to different people, and Jesus comes back to life. And on that Sunday that Jesus rose, he appears to Mary Magdalene first, and then he appears to a couple guys on the road um, leading out of Jerusalem into another town. And then that evening he shows up in the room, the locked room where all the disciples are, mourning and freaking out and confused. Jesus shows up there and visits with them and has a meal with them. Uh, and then another week passes. We don't know uh, much about what happened in that first week. A week later, Jesus shows up again in, in a locked room, probably in Jerusalem with his, uh, his followers, his disciples, and, uh, and spends some time and talks with them. That's the story Wendy talked about last week with Thomas and his struggle to believe uh, and understand what's going on. And so we get to this story that we're going to look at um, today. And I think we have to hold in our minds that the way that broken dreams and hopes and expectations work, they don't just mend quickly. That these guys are really still confused and wondering what's going on. Still dealing with this, um, like, connecting everything they experienced with Jesus and his death, and then he's alive, and he's, he's appearing every once in a while. We don't, there's only six accounts of Jesus appearing or reconnecting with people during those 40 days from the three in the first day and one at the end and then two stuck in the middle somewhere. Maybe he appeared to them more. We don't know. The gospel writers didn't record for us more than um, these six stories. Uh, and I suspect maybe the gospel writers didn't really know where is he, what's he doing all this time. He shows up and we're all surprised and then he, he's gone again and then he shows up and we're all surprised. And, uh, and uh, so we're in this sort of period of 40 days where we're not really sure what's going on, I think, as um, Jesus' followers and friends here. All right, so um, this uh, is where we encounter the story. So the story is kind of long. Uh, it comes from John 21, uh, verses 1 to 14. And I have a handout that I want to give so that we can go down through it together. And I'm just going to read it, and I'll stop and throw in little things along the way uh, as we work down through the story. And we're just meeting Jesus, trying to get our minds into this place where these uh, disciples, Jesus' friends, are. So some people want to help me hand out these uh, sheets. All right, you're going to be tempted to, like, read ahead and get down through there, um, which I, uh, it's okay if you want to do that. But we're going to go down through it together. So um, if you want to hold on, no surprises, no spoilers, just wait as we talk down through here. Mostly everybody's got a sheet. Do you need one over there, Cher? 
All right, so um, so we're gonna read down through here, and I'm gonna stop now and then, and uh, so you're just gonna kind of follow along. I'll try to give you the verses so you can kind of keep track as we're reading along. Uh, so starting at the beginning of John chapter 21, this is the very last chapter in the book of John, so we're very close to the end of his um, his account of Jesus' life. So starting there at the beginning, Jesus appeared again to his disciples, this time by the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so stop there. Um, jump down, actually, if you look at the very last verse, it doesn't spoil too much. Verse 14. This is now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So think about the timeline. So we've got the three uh, appearances of Jesus on Sunday. The last one, he meets with all of his disciples. A week later, the story that Wendy gave us, this is the, the following Sunday, most likely. Uh, a week later, Jesus meet, meets with all of his disciples a second time. So then we have this story, which is a third meeting somewhere in these, whatever that is, 36 days or 33 days or whatever the math is. Um, so somewhere in here. And when you get a feel for the story as we work down through it, you'll see, I suspect it's maybe later in this time frame. And then we have the last story of Jesus meeting with them uh, on a hillside in Galilee when Jesus leaves the earth and ascends into heaven. So we're out here somewhere, and this is the third time, John says, that Jesus has met with a group of the disciples. So, all right, verse 2. Simon Peter, uh, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, which is up near Galilee up there, um, the sons of Zebedee, so we know the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. Uh, their, their dad, Zebedee, they refer to as uh, James and John, sons of Zebedee. Uh, and two other disciples were together. Two other disciples, I don't know. So there's 12 of them. There were 12 of them. Judas is dead now, so there's only 11 of the 12. This accounts for seven. John is kind of like, there were two other guys there. I can't remember which two. I don't think he left their names out intentionally. I, you know, he's 80. So... Uh, Two other of the disciples. So there's seven of them together here by the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is going to show up on the scene. So verse 3, I read this through again last night and was just trying to, trying to set aside everything else I was going to say and just, just spend some time with the story. And something struck me here, and particularly as we go into verse 3. So verse 3, I am going to go out to fish, Peter told them, told the other six. And they said, ah, we'll go with you. So they went out, they got into the boat, um, but, that, uh, but that night they caught nothing. So they fished all night, it would seem. Jesus meets them in the morning in a moment. Um, so this is what occurred to me as I was processing through this. We're thinking about their disappointment, their confusion. They're not sure what's going on. They're not seeing Jesus a lot uh, after his resurrection. And they're wondering, and we see this confusion continue for a while, what's, what's up? And I think they do what many of us do they went back to normal life. So the cru Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. So that's way down south, and I forgot to look up the mileage. I think it's like 60 or 90, somewhere between 60 and 90 miles from Jerusalem up to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and so you're thinking walking. They're not, there's no machines. They're walking. Uh, and how many ever miles you can do in a day. You're talking about days of time. So they met with Jesus a few times in an upper room. He appeared, and then somewhere in there, they just decide, we're going to walk back to Galilee. So we got these, how many ever of them went back up to Galilee? There's seven at this point at the Sea of Galilee. So it occurred to me, they're going home, back to, this, back to the area around Galilee. They're going back to their jobs. These guys were fishermen, professional commercial fishermen on this lake, Sea of Galilee. 
They're going back to their jobs, going back to the area that they know, that they're familiar with. And I think that's what we do. We don't really know what's going on. We get confused. And we could spend a lot of time there, or we can just, I guess I'll just go back to what I know. I'll go back home. I'll go back to what's normal. And that strikes me as fascinating because of what we see Jesus do in this story. So let's, um, let's continue. Peter's like, I don't know. I'm going fishing. And the rest of them are like, okay, we'll go with you. So they go out and they fish all night. They don't catch anything. Add, like, insult to injury. Like, we're discouraged. We're whatever. Let's go back to work. And then they don't catch any fish all night long. Um, verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the, sto- on the shore. So they're out on the water in their boat. He's on the shore. But the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. So there's this guy standing on the shore. They don't realize that it's Jesus there. So this guy calls out to them, friends, have you, haven't you any fish? I kind of be like, who are you? And why are you pointing out that we haven't caught fish all night? But, you know, no, they answered, we don't have any fish. Verse 6, they still don't know it's Jesus. He says, throw your nets on the other side of your boat and you'll find some there. And then I'm thinking, like, this is what we do for a living. What are you talking about? Well, maybe the, sh- the sunlight or something, and he saw some movement we can't see. So, all right, let's, you know, it's been all night. It's worth a try. Let's throw our nets on the other side. And so they take, and it's not like a little net that you just switch over. It's like a process. They pull it all in, gather it all up, drop it on the other side of the boat. Uh, and it says, when they did, They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And it tells us later that these were large. It's a large number of large fish. They're not small fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, so that's the way John refers to himself, um, the disciple who Jesus loved, says to Peter, so Peter and John, two of the people in the boat, two of Jesus' close friends, John says to Peter, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garments around him because, you know, he'd take them off while he was working and he wrapped them around him and he jumps into the water. What was it? Like they, he's, it tells us in a moment, it's like 300, they're like 300 feet from the shore. So that's like the length of a football field or a soccer field. So if you're standing at one end and you see a guy on the very end, you're not necessarily going to know like, oh, that's Jesus. So it isn't a visual thing. But somehow Jesus, or John knows, it's Jesus. And I think it's because this is how Jesus works. You're in the pit, you're struggling, he shows up, gently gives you some thoughts, something to do. You do it, and something extraordinary happens. That Jesus shows up in this gracious way, they throw their nets on that. They don't care about the fish at that moment. John knows this is Jesus. This is the way he works. This is what he does. And he says to Peter, it's Jesus. And Peter is like, ah! Wraps his clothes around and jumps in the water. In his full clothes, 300 feet, I don't know if there's swimmers in the room, that's a ways, especially in, a, in like a body, a large body of water, um, which we've seen other stories where there's giant storms on this body. So it's not just a small little thing. He jumps in the water and he's swimming in all of his clothes to the beach to get to Jesus because that's what Peter does. He's like, oh, it's Jesus. I got to get there to see him. Verse 8. The other disciples, who did not jump into the water, followed in this nice boat they had, um, towing the net full of fish along with them, because they weren't that far from the shore, about 100 yards. Um, When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. 
and some bread. So, so think about, I don't know how much time you spend with campfires. I don't know if you've, ha- I, I won't ask how many people have actually cooked on a campfire. You know, it's a thing, um, but it's not an easy thing. So, and this is 2,000 years ago. There's not lighters and other things that make it easier. Um, so this is what the process of what that little phrase there, when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. So this, just think about what it would have taken. So Jesus apparently knows this is the area they're going to be in, and so he arranges to kind of be on the shore there. He collects a bunch of firewood. You can't cook with a little bit of firewood. You have to cook with a lot. You need a lot of firewood. And you don't cook on just the flames. A lot of people have been a hot dog, like cooked hot dogs on a fire, which hot dogs are already cooked, by the way, and if you don't cook them enough, you're not going to die. So it doesn't really matter. You can just get them warm. So, but that's not true with fish and bread and other things that they would be cooking then. So uh, create a fire. You need hot coals to cook. And it takes sometimes hours to get a hot bed of coals. And that's what it tells us here, the fire of burning coals. So Jesus gathered a bunch of wood. He built a fire. He nurtured that fire until there was a lot of coals down there. And then where did he get the bread? Where did he get the fish? Did he fish? During the night while they were out there, he was on shore fishing? Or did he go to town during the day before and buy the fish? Did he make the bread? Did he have the ingredients? Did he buy bread in town and bring it out and warm it up? Like, something's up. This isn't just like Jesus whipped up a fire and started uh, and suddenly had bread and fish. This is like the indication we get here of a nurtured and cared for fire to the point where he can make some bread or at least warm up and bake some bread and fry some fish. So this is the scene that these guys walk into. And I imagine they see this fire and they see Jesus and all the shock of the weeks before. And they're just kind of standing there watching. In verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Which I think was Jesus' way of saying, hey guys, you have a boat and a bunch of fish over there you forgot about. <laughs> you know, oh, and so what happens? So Simon Peter climbs back into the boat, drags the net of um, a fish ashore. It was full of large fish. How many fish, you ask? 153 large fish. But even with so many, so these guys are fishermen, John knows, even with that many fish, the net should have been torn. The net wasn't torn. Jesus was up to something. He was doing his thing. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, and he took the bread, and he gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. You want to know what God is like, John says? He shares very unique stories with us. You want to know what his unfailing love and faithfulness look like? This is what John says, the bookends of his book here, the, end, the intro and the ending. The God of the universe created it all. He brought order out of the chaos of the cosmos. And a little while later, he made a little campfire on a beach. He tended it till he had some hot coals. He baked some bread over the coals, fried up some fish. And then he took it and he divided it up to his friends, for his friends. And then um, the very last bit of the book of John, after the meal was finished, they um, finished up the meal. I suspect they'd been up all night fishing. I suspect most of them fell asleep, um, but not all of them. 
Jesus and Peter, it appears, go for a walk, and they have a conversation. And uh, on that walk, I suspect, along the water, um, Jesus asks Peter three different times, do you love me? And Peter is each time like, yes, you know, of course, you know everything. You know that I, I love you. And each time Jesus replies, take care of my sheep. I love you, Peter, and you love me. Now go and love others the way that I have loved you. Now, if you recall, just a few weeks before this, just before uh, Jesus died on the cross that night when he was arrested, Peter denied Jesus. He denied even knowing who Jesus was three times. He denied his friendship with Jesus three times in that evening. And I, I think it's not a coincidence that as they're walking on the beach, maybe their last time together, or one of their last times one-on-one -on -one together, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? He gives Peter the chance to affirm, I know you've denied me. I know you messed up. I know you struggle. I know you're confused. I know you don't always get it. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Okay, go and love other people too. That's the kind of Jesus that we see. Compassionate and patient. He doesn't condemn, he loves. He offers us friendship. He refers to them as friends. Have you any fish? You know, this conversation, these are the things that may seem easy for us to skip over as we're reading, but this is John's heart writing these things on a, word, on a page. And John doesn't want us to miss the truth of how Jesus interacted and lived his life. After all, John said at the beginning of his book, the law was given through Moses. We know what the law is all about, but God's unfailing love and his faithfulness, that came through Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, has revealed God to us. And I wonder, I don't think it's any surprise that um, these words we find in another letter written by John uh, in 1 John. Uh, John writes this, so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence. In this world, we are like Jesus. This is how love is made complete among us. In this world, we are like Jesus. Jesus. May we, you and I, may this church truly be like Jesus. May we devote ourselves to knowing Jesus, to learning about him and learning from him. May we grow in our understanding of love and our capacity to love others. And may the world know Jesus by our love.